Yeah, I was at my most miserable when I was, ironically, at my most financially successful. Uh, when I had the most visibility, my face was on a billboard on a side of a six-story building in New York. All the things that when you're starting out in show business, you think, oh, if I could just get that. I was still thinking about suicide 50 times a day. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, I want to welcome Paul Gilmartin to the show. Paul, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, being willing to be on this show, so thank you. Uh, well, you know what? You, you said you can't thank me enough. Give it a shot. Let's uh, see. Thank you, thank but, you, thank you. Well, you know, you're, you're warming up. I, I, am still, warming up. I am still actually pinching myself thinking that I am actually talking to Paul Gilmartin. When I reached out to you, I think it was through um, maybe Twitter at some point, and I've seen some fake accounts and such, so... I'm happy. I think this really is you. <laughs> yeah, that it is, is that it is, is phenomenal. Me, for better or for worse. Well, I know what it's like to reach out uh, to ask somebody to be on your podcast, and they don't even respond. And it's just kind of like I don't know. It's uh, it's not a good feeling. Um, and if I couldn't do it, I, I think I would probably. I'd like to think that I would at least message you back and say, you know, I'm slammed right now, um, but I appreciate the offer. And not only that, you, I don't know if you recall, but we uh, emailed back and forth. And before I ever started my show, you actually emailed me some suggestions around getting started with podcasting. Oh, so, good. so you have been incredibly helpful. So I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, good. Glad I could help. Hey, um, I would love to start. Obviously, um, you have an incredibly popular podcast uh, that we will talk about soon, the Mental Illness Happy Hour. But I'd love to start uh, by asking you if you could share a little bit about you personally, maybe even something that you think uh, people may not normally know about yourself. Hmm. Um, boy, that's a good one because I've talked about so much on my podcast, you know, if somebody's a regular listener, I feel like they know everything about me. Um, but for somebody who's never heard my podcast, um, I battled uh, addiction, depression, and anxiety for most of my life. Um, I had a childhood that looked good from the outside, but uh, there was a lot of dysfunction in there. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had struggles with intimacy. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm much better at being open and vulnerable uh, today than I than I used to be. But I never wanted to ask for help. I thought asking for help was weak, and it almost killed me um, because I was self medicating with uh, drugs and alcohol and becoming more and more suicidal. And I finally knew that I was I was going to kill myself if I didn't try something. So I went to see a psychiatrist and that was kind of the beginning of, uh, starting to figure things out and put the effort into, uh, uh, managing all my issues as best I can. Certainly don't do it perfectly, but you know, 
So you said most of your life you've been battling with it. Um, what was the first indication that, that something was going on with your mental health? Um, I escaped a lot as a, as a kid in, in my mind. I um, had, you don't know that that's what you're doing when you're a kid, um, but it, my mom could be a really hard person to be around. Um, she could be really inappropriate and, um, you know, my dad was checked out. Uh, he was, he was a high functioning alcoholic and they did not have a great marriage. They didn't argue, but it was very cold. There was no affection between the two of them. And, um, uh, and so I kind of became the default person to, you know, listen to all her woes, uh, you know, at seven years old, that's, that's, a you know, hearing your mother complain to you about wanting to leave your father when you're seven years old is, you know, that's, that's uh, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. That's, that's a loss of innocence, you know, yeah. and then you couple in some of the, uh, physical boundaries that, that, that she would cross with me. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I think it, it, it just made it really hard for me to uh, be in my skin, but it was very unconscious. So I, uh, my, I think that's probably where my addictive personality probably saved me, because if I could just focus on something that brought me pleasure, um, I wouldn't have to experience the pressure of feeling like I have to keep my mom happy or the family is going to break up mm-hmm. or I don't like the way my mom's touching me or looking at me or, you know, any of that other stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I remember have sometimes having to think about things that I would enjoy to, in the future to like lift my, lift my spirits. Um, but in many ways I, I also had a great childhood. Um, I was raised in a, in a, in a neighborhood where there was a forest and I had friends. And, uh, as you know, you look like you're roughly my age, you, you know, your parents opened the door and said, be back at dinner time. And, um, and you'd go explore and have fun. And, uh, so, so it was a mixed bag. Yeah, exactly. What about when you, um, this is clearly, I would imagine looking in hindsight, right? That like, wow, age seven, this is what my mom was, was doing, uh, and, um, and experiencing kind of concerns around your mental, mental health and such. What about, at what point in your life did you actually realize it? Like, I'm really struggling here. Um, there was little, little kind of, uh, eruptions along the way. The, f- the first time I remember thinking something might be wrong with me um, was um, uh, I was 24 years old and I was in traffic in downtown Chicago and my light turned green but people were still walking across the crosswalk and more people just started going because they knew, oh, it's safe because other people are there. And so I'm late for something and I'm laying on the horn and nobody's paying attention, which is like one of my deepest fears is that I'm invisible. And, uh, but I didn't know that at the time and I'm laying on the horn and I'm, you know, got my head out the window, just screaming obscenities at these people. And all of a sudden, like this guy out of nowhere, uh, 
with like he was took a time machine, you know, from the fifties, you know, with the briefcase and the overcoat and the fedora, and all of a sudden his face is just like four inches from mine, and he just looks at me with a mixture of disgust and pity, and and he says, "Son, get a hold of yourself," and then he just walks away, and it's just like. It's like it snapped me out of some fugue state that that I was in. I, I had never ever considered myself an angry person, but um, I was. I had so much rage inside me, but I would uh, use humor. Uh, I would use a, a, a lot of things. But you know, I was thinking about that event the other day, and I'm like, this guy steps over people in their urine every day. And he was alarmed by, by me. <laughs> right. <I> mean, <laughs> that sounds like quite a vivid memory that you've got from years back. It's yeah. I felt shame and concern for myself, and I got into therapy shortly after that. And that's when I began to realize that there was an inappropriateness with my mom. But I wouldn't really give weight to what she did until twenty-five years later. Hmm. So you had that incident, and then that essentially drove you to realizing, well, I got to do something. And you went straight to a, a therapist then, essentially? I did. I did, yeah. Kind of skipped the family doctor situation, oh, just yeah. went straight to a therapist. Yeah, yeah. And, and was your first experience with a therapist, what was that like? It was very positive. Um, I remember the first thing she said to me is, you are so hard on yourself. And... I thought the problem was is that I wasn't hard enough on myself. Um, but as I heard somebody say one time, uh, beating yourself, beating yourself up never improved anybody. Mm. Um, shaming yourself uh, never improved anybody's life. Um, and it's something to this day that I, I still struggle with. Um, you know, one of my only memories of kindergarten is uh, coloring in the wrong part on this paper and realizing I had made a mistake and just being inconsolable. Just that I remember the teacher like almost laughing, like, it's okay, it's okay. But to me, it was to make a mistake was to die. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's really pretty common around men who have experienced depression. Yeah. I'm incredibly tough on myself. And especially when I was in a depressive episode, I would take anything as a negative towards me. Mm -hmm. Like, For example, I'm a school administrator. We had a team of people who made a schedule. But if somebody complained about the schedule, they were complaining about me. And then I would spiral down. And any time there was a compliment, uh, it was easy for me to brush it off, make excuses. Um, really pretty incredible. Yeah. The the unnecessary weight of walking around your day taking other people's actions personally is one of the biggest wastes of time energy and thought a human being can do uh, there was a guy in traffic today that was just so annoyed by everybody and i just thought i'm so glad i'm not that guy anymore um you know did you no walk idea. up to him, uh, walk up to him wearing a fedora and get right <laughs> in his face? I should have. <laughs> he looked like he probably would have shot me, though. Uh, 
But I just thought, you know, this guy had no idea. Just he's so unconscious that he got in his car and he had no idea. Oh, I'm going to go out, get into traffic and take things personally. Hmm. So, hey, back to the first time seeing a therapist, did did she give you a diagnosis right away or how did you how did you end up with a diagnosis or did you ever end up with a diagnosis? No, I wasn't diagnosed with clinical depression until uh, 1999. Um, and then I didn't address my uh, alcoholism and drug addiction until 2003 because um, the psychiatrist refused to treat me anymore. Because and, of the, the self-medicating. Yeah, like, yeah, he said, I'm wasting both of our times. Um, and that was a wake-up call for me. But I think the biggest thing that I got out of uh, that first therapy was that um, I didn't realize how hard I am on myself. And I didn't realize how much I was living my life to keep my mom happy. Um, and how little I stood up to her and how easily... Um, I would feel manipulated by her. Uh, and I think that, uh, one of the byproducts of that is, um, I have always struggled with intimacy in committed relationships. It's like once, once I know that we're committed to each other, it, it's very easy for it to go into like a roommate kind of a, kind of a thing. Um, because uh, uh, the fear of responsibility for somebody else's feelings, um, it's so overwhelming to me. Um, that's why I isolate a lot. Um, even to this day, that's how you, how you are with relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, my wife and I just got divorced and we've been together for a long time, but, uh, I'm not an easy person to live with because I, um, I can, I can be withdrawn. I can, um, I mean, I would go months, if not years without making any plans. She would have to plan everything. Um, and I just wanted to escape it. In many ways, I was still like that kid, um, that just wanted something that would take him out of his, uh, his sense of dread about life. And, uh, and the future, I mean, my two primary emotions for most of my life were dread or excitement. And if I was in dread, I needed to find something that brought me excitement. Um, and that's a hard way to live because, um, you know, I've discovered in sobriety and through support groups that peace is the goal. Um, excitement is nice if it happens, but excitement is really hard to manufacture. Peace is very easy to manufacture, at least for me, because all I have to do is let go of my ideas of how everything should be. It makes me think about how some people describe that it doesn't necessarily, happiness doesn't have to even be our goal, but contentment. Exactly. Right. Being content. Yeah. I was at my most miserable when I was ironically, at my most financially successful. Uh, when I had the most visibility, my face was on a billboard on a side of a six-story building in New York. All the things that when you're starting out in show business, you think, oh, if I could just get that. 
I was still thinking about suicide 50 times a day, you know? Wow. So would you describe your depression? It sounds like it's kind of continual or do you go in cycles? It goes in cycles. The fall is always a tough time for me. You know, I like to, to joke that, uh, uh, you know, my when my fall depression makes its appearance, it uh, it has a uh, an entourage that takes its cape off when it uh, when it comes in. It's yeah, it's something about the short days and the gray skies and the bare trees. Um, uh, well, and there's oh, the, oh, the an actual diagnosis for that, right? Of SAD, seasonal yes. affective disorder. Yeah. Um, where they talk about if you have two, I think it's two, the official diagnosis is two seasons or two years, or maybe it's three, where it always hits around October, yeah. The, yeah. the cape coming off time. I did the, I did the light for a, a couple of years and it worked well. And then for some reason, I just kind of got away from it. Um, but my uh, psychiatrist and I have been tweaking my meds on and off for 17 years. And about a year and a half ago, I feel like we finally found the right combination. And interestingly enough, the, the, the big change maker was uh, Adderall. And I had been resistant to, to take it because being a recovering uh, alcoholic drug addict, Adderall is amphetamine. Mm. But that had never really been my thing. Uh, I was more into depressants and um which is ironic for somebody who's depressed, but depressants would make me euphoric you know, when, when I was drunk or high, but then the depression would be worse when it, when it wore off. But, um, I decided to give it a shot and, uh, it's the depression just lifted and conversing wasn't as difficult. Getting out of bed wasn't scary. I didn't, uh, I used to have to crawl into bed at four o'clock every afternoon, even if I got up at noon, uh, because the world just felt like too much. And Adderall um, changed that uh, for me. And um, I've, been, I've been able to um, go with just one dose a day instead of two, because um, it can kind of dry you out a little bit. So I, I, I want to take as little as I can. And right. uh, I feel like I found the the right deal for that. It took so long to get to that place. You know, I'd feel good with some combination for a while and then it would start going away. And, right. Uh, right. Uh, it was so frustrating. And while you were self-medicating, so I'm guessing what I've always heard is that, um, you really got to cut out the, the booze, the drugs uh, before yeah. you can even address the depression, yes. right? Yes. The mental and illness. And it takes probably 18 months for a body to detox from all of the stuff you've been pounding into it. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, it's a long process. Did you ever uh, enter any kind of program, like a, an outpatient program, a partial hospitalization program, or anything? And no, and I, how did you finally get over the addictions? Like I, I just heard started, that it's so tough. Yeah, I just started going to support groups, and I still go today um, because there's a, a spiritual component um, to uh, depression that um, can help uh, connection to other human beings. Um, it can help with depression. It can help with addiction. It can help with anything. It can help with trauma. Uh, in and of itself, it's not a cure, but 
I've found that uh, managing my addictions and my mental illnesses, um, I got to hit it on a bunch of fronts and I got to do it every day. You know, I pray, I meditate, I make my bed, I connect to other people uh, from my support groups. I try to be of service. Um, I try to be mindful throughout my day, try to exercise, try to eat, eat well, do things in moderation. Yeah, I, I have to be vigilant, but you, you, I, it's not a big deal anymore because I'm used to it. It becomes a part of your lifestyle, right? You make a, those changes. Of, yeah, and I don't crave drugs or alcohol anymore. I stopped craving them about three months into getting sober. Um, but it's not the substances that are the problem with somebody who is an addict or an alcoholic. It's the thinking. Hmm. It's the view of the world that is what drives us. Right. It's, it's underneath the drinking and the drugging, the self-centered, fearful view of the world. Right, right. You know, I, I agree 100%. I have many tools in my tool belt, but one that I really value is support groups. And I've been mentally healthy for quite a while now, and I'm sure some of the listeners to my show have heard me say that, that I still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety every other week. And it is such a comforting, trusting, safe environment to share. And I also think that the more you can find a group that is a focus, a narrow focus, like mine is specifically men with depression and anxiety, um, it, it's really easy to connect with them and they can all relate to one another. So I was in a three-week partial hospitalization program and we had a support group or a therapy group really because a the therapist ran it. It, and it was helpful support group. Mm -hmm. I think all of them are helpful, but I couldn't really connect with the 22 year old woman who was dealing with bipolar disorder or the mm -hmm. 75 year old woman who was losing her apartment and, and such. And when I found a support group of men, I, I actually it was before I entered the partial hospitalization program and I like cried for two hours and spilled mm -hmm. my guts um, yeah. but it was such a safe place. Yeah. It's, it really is about finding a safe place in the world. And my support group meetings are the safest spaces in the world to me. And, uh, one of the meetings that I go to is, is a men only meeting. And, uh, I get what you're saying. Um, and it has nothing to do with, with women. It's just when you take the element of wanting to be attractive to somebody else, people get more honest Right. They're a little looser. Yeah. Um, and I think when we get to be a certain age and we're not playing sports anymore, we miss that male bonding. And um, I love the, the bonding in my uh, my men's group. It's uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I think it's essential. Yeah. And, and with ours, we've started kind of an email group, too, so that if somebody's feeling down or they need some encouragement, sometimes they'll just email the whole group and share something, and they know that somebody will respond back, like, hey, I got you. Let's do coffee this weekend or something. That's great. Um, hey, I would love to shift gears a bit and hear, like, you're a really well-known dude, <laughs> and I want to hear, how did you get uh, your start kind of in the showbiz world? Um, that's so funny because I don't consider myself a well-known person at all. Um, I, uh, started doing stand-up comedy in the late eighties and, uh, had some decent success there. Uh, was able to support myself, um, 
and second city right was that your start uh i went that was more a training for improvisation okay um and i was never invited to be a member of second city but i went through their training center okay got it yeah um which actually paid off because my first tv job was doing a dinner and a movie on uh, on tbs and we decided that that show would be improvised you know we tried cue cards for about five seconds and we all looked at each other and we we're like, let's just wing it. And, um, and, uh, so and that, that was, was quite probably, successful, right? I mean, you were on almost 15 years straight, wasn't it? it uh, 16 years. Yeah, we 16, were on 16 years. Yeah. yeah. 95 to 2011. Um, so I was very grateful to, um, to have that, that job security, uh, it kept me from having to be on the road doing standup so I could choose when to go on the road and not get burned out by it. And, um, it, uh, I, I suppose that's where maybe most people know me from. Um, and then I started doing the podcast, uh, the mental illness happy hour in 2011, uh, cause I'd gone off my meds and, uh, suicidal ideation came back and I got fooled by it. And then I realized what it was and I thought, my God, I can't believe I got fooled by it. You know, I've been in recovery for years and uh, somebody needs to talk about this. And so I started the podcasts. That's awesome. Hey, say more about being fooled by it. You know, it's mental illness in many ways is like uh, addiction. I, I you know, think of uh, addiction as a mental illness and it is a shape shifting thing that presents itself as, as something else. It will present itself as um everybody's disrespecting you or, uh, your house, uh, is lame. You need a bigger house or, uh, everybody hates you, but they're just pretending to like you. Um, it's a uh, lot of that negative self-talk. It's all negative self-talk and it's usually manifests itself in either, um, uh, dwelling on the past and beating ourselves up or projecting, doom or grandiosity into the future. Yeah. Thus and, the mindfulness, right? The living yes, in the moment. Yeah. The, the, all we have is the, is the given moment and the ego, which is, uh, you know, as we say in uh, our support group is, is not your amigo. Um, it, it does not want you to be one of many. It wants you to be better than or less than. That's the only thing it can conceive of. And that's where mental illness and addiction can really, really uh, become inflamed is when the ego gets involved and starts uh, lying to, to us. And that's why support groups are so helpful to me because I am reminded every time I'm there that it feels so good to be one of many, right. to be just like somebody else. Yeah. Um, so were your suicidal ideations kind of general thoughts of not wanting to be around or did they, I mean, did they, they become... would vary. Okay. They would vary between, uh, you know, I'm going to go in the backyard and, you know, shoot myself, uh, or, uh, wake up and think I, I can't do another day of this. God, I, I don't want to die, but I don't want to be alive. That's where I've probably lived with most of my depression is I don't want to die, but I do not want to be alive. Yeah. And that's a terrible place to, to be. And that's when you kind of 
dive head first into the tool belt and, and pull out all your tools and yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I've actually, uh, started doing is I don't shame myself for taking a nap. I don't shame myself for sleeping till two in the afternoon. Um, you know, mental illness is uh, a serious thing that has a lot of ripples and it's much more serious than the flu. And why would we care for ourselves less compassionately with mental illness than we would with the flu? Well, with the flu, we don't shame ourselves for staying in bed and taking yeah. care of ourselves, but um, we don't shame ourselves for heart disease or cancer either. We don't. And we, we don't. don't shame others when they come down with an illness like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you were off your meds and, and it was while you were off your meds that you created this idea for the mental illness happy hour. No, right after I got back on them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, you know, within three days I was feeling better. And you decided yeah. I need to do something publicly yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I felt how like did podcasting would be the perfect medium because um, you you can't uh, you can't talk about such a complex subject um, in a way that is you know sound bitey. You can't you can't deal with it in five minutes. Right. Right. Because it often overlaps with trauma, addiction. Um, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of other things. So rarely is depression just an isolated thing. You know, right. there's almost always some neglectful or traumatic childhood or running in the family or alcoholism or, uh, something. Yeah. And, and it's a big tangled bowl of spaghetti and you need an hour yeah, to absolutely. begin to untangle it. So for our listeners, can you first say, uh, let everybody know how they can find Mental Illness Happy Hour and then also just share a bit about the show? Uh, the website is mentalpod.com and you can find it through uh, Apple Podcasts or um, Stitcher or any. iTunes. Any, yeah. Um, it's a part interview um the average show is probably an hour and a half long and uh, sometimes up to two and a half hours long. And uh, the interview is usually anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. I interview another person and we talk about uh, any uh, mental or emotional battle uh, that they have experienced or are experiencing. We talk about it, talk about their childhoods. Um, and then the other half of the show is me reading surveys that have been filled out anonymously by listeners on a variety of topics. And those can be really, really um, uh, heartbreaking, hilarious, um, uh, baffling, um, illuminating. Uh, and so that's kind of what the what the podcast uh, is. And we yeah, we've been around since 2011, and I think we've done like 353 episodes. So do you have a team of people who help you put this together, line up no. guests, no. or is this just you? I don't know why I say we. Yeah, it's me. Really? It's me. I have somebody that helps me with the website. Okay. Um, and um, Maybe you're not as famous as I thought then. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you had the sound guy, the editor, the... No, no, no. no. Um, fortunately, um, having played guitar since I was a teenager, um, 
I started getting into recording uh, Pro Tools about 20 years ago, and that paid off greatly when I started doing the podcast because I knew how to edit audio. And um, so the, really the only thing I need help with is putting the uh, uh, keeping the website current and stuff oh, like yeah. that. But that doesn't mean I couldn't use help. You know, I could yeah. definitely use help. How do you get guests for the show? Variety of ways. Sometimes they're suggested um, either by a friend. Sometimes a publicist will reach out to me. Uh, sometimes um, I'll see somebody in the media or hear about them. I'll reach out to them. Um, uh, sometimes it's a friend from a support group. Um, sometimes it's a therapist. Uh, yeah, I interview listeners. Uh, they've been some of the best guests. Right, right. Do you have a, uh, a favorite show? A favorite guest? God, there's so many. You know, a some are like, there are some that are like a movies. They're so dramatic that you could see it being made into a movie. There are others that are vitally important because it address, addresses an underserved set of people. Um, the one that I think probably fits best into that category is an episode with Dr. Janice Webb. Her name is spelled J-O-N-I-C-E. And it's about emotional neglect. Uh, she wrote a book called Running on Empty. And I think there are so many people who have a battle in them that was created by emotional neglect in childhood. And they are they can't understand why they feel the way they do because they have nothing in their life to point to, to say I was beaten or I was molested or I was kidnapped. You don't have to have those things. You know, the thing that, that they all share, the person who was molested or beaten or neglected, the message that was given to them is the same. You don't matter. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what envelope the message comes in it's how do you undo those negative self-beliefs and it's hard to undo them right it's right. like a tattoo man you can undo yeah. them but it takes a lot of time so um as far as dramatic episodes there's one with um a woman who was a child uh, during the holocaust in the warsaw ghetto uh, Christine Keyes is her name, K-E-E-S-E. -E. Um, there's a great one with uh, Andrea Abbott. Her last name is spelled A-B-B-A-T-E. Uh, she's really funny. And her mom was such a narcissist. And she, she describes her mom as a movie star without a movie. <laughs> um, there's, there's so many. I'm sure I'm going to... Any... Uh... Any episodes that, uh, or anything that caught you completely off guard while you were on the show? Yeah. Um, there was an episode with, um, oh God, who was it? I don't think it was Allison Rosen. Who was it? No, I, it was with, um, uh, oh my God, why am I spacing out, uh, on her name? Maybe because you did 353 podcasts. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Gina Grad. 
who's a radio personality here in Los Angeles, really, really sweet person. And she was talking about um, having had uh, sex when she didn't want to and where she had just kind of shut down and she had she had kind of been badgered into um, doing it. And I just felt my stomach drop because I suddenly realized, oh my God, I was that guy so many times. And I never, um, I never realized how screwed up that was, how selfish that was uh, of me to do that. And it's probably the biggest shame that I carry around to this day. Um, and that was, that was an eye opener. There's been a ton of eye openers doing the the podcast though. Um, uh, people's, the relationship between people's trauma and their sexual fantasies has been a really illuminating thing for me. Um, uh, one of the things I really try to get across with the podcast is to tell people, don't be ashamed of what turns you on. Just be mindful of the difference between fantasy and reality. And if you're not hurting anybody in reality, embrace your fantasy. Maybe find a consenting partner that can explore it with you. But, you know, to go to your grave hating, you know, yourself for what turns you on is just, uh, you know, it's, it's a waste of effort. Life's too short to hate the hand you were dealt. Just be conscious of the way you play it. Right. Absolutely. So when, when the woman mentioned kind of being badgered into bed, um, and you said you kind of had a feeling in your gut, were you able to get through that podcast? All right. I was, I started talking about it immediately and I've probably brought it up maybe six or eight times since then. Uh, that was early on. Her episode was in the first year of, uh, doing the podcast and now we're now in our sixth year, um, of doing it. Congratulations. I'm not awesome. sure why I say we, it just, it feels too <laughs> self-centered to say I, um, yeah, my Catholic upbringing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I try to be very, um, open about it because sometimes if I'm, um, listening to a guest talk about it, um, I feel like a hypocrite if I don't mention my past. And, uh, there was a, an episode recently with, um, oh God, who was, who was the guest? Uh, we were talking about consent and she was talking about how she had basically had many experiences like Gina did. And I felt again, that I should share my history. And I was kind of blown away because she then said, I've also been that person too. I've been the one that manipulated guys that said no, you know, that, you know, got them erect and then took what I wanted. And, right. and it was, it was nice to be uh, reminded that um, everybody is fallible and beating yourself up isn't the solution. Um, Asking yourself, how can I make sure I never do that again? You know, how right. if I can contact that person, how can I say I'm sorry? Or, you know, put something back into the world that is the opposite of 
what you what you did. Right. Yeah, it sounds like lots of lessons learned through oh. for yourself through all of the podcasting. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite episodes was, and I'm I'm spacing on the name, you might remember, but it was a gentleman who wrote a book and it was published and it was really about his wife's um, episode of yeah. um, mania, really. And yeah. um, hers had a lot to do with religiosity. Mm-hmm. And, and it was interesting because it was from the spouse's point of view, the male's point of view, mm-hmm. who wasn't able to get the help like everybody was surrounding her trying to help her and then there he was kind of going wow what the hell is going on and and who's helping me and and i think that was spouses need need support you know my wife i think she held our family together for four to six months of my major depressive episode and and nobody was there to support her yeah that's a great point and and that's a, a really good episode for um for people to listen to, to hear what it's like for the spouse. Um, that is, uh, uh, that couple is, uh, Mark and Julia Lukacs. That's and, right. Yeah. That, that's a really good one. Yeah. Um, so as, so I have a couple questions here as an, as somebody who does interviews on a regular basis, this is a, a bit on the selfish side, but what kind of advice do you have for, for really good interviews? Uh, just converse. Don't feel like you need to be somebody different when you switch the mic on. You know, sometimes I'll hear people go, okay, you know, uh, we're going to uh, start rolling in a couple minutes. I'm here with Paul Gilmartin. It's, it's like, why would you talk like that? You don't just talk like you normally talk. Um, uh, you often have to say less than you think you do. People often over explain things. Um, editing, editing, editing whether it's the title of your episode, um, your episode itself, the description of an episode, uh, an email to somebody asking them to be on the show. I can't tell you how many emails I get from a publicist pitching a client and it's, you know, five paragraphs long. People are too busy these days to read five paragraphs of something. Keep it to a paragraph. If that person is interested, they'll contact you to get more information. Shorter is better. Yeah. Absolutely. Shorter is better. So hey, you've been on a lot of shows and such and been a guest and you've been even the lead. And do, is there a time on TV that stands out as like your most memorable time, hmm. a particular interview or, or such? Um, mostly they were the shows that you're talking about dinner and a movie. Dinner and a movie, or weren't you on a late night show before as a guest yeah. and such? Yeah, that was just doing stand up. That's never really that. You're just kind of by yourself on on that one. Okay, right. Uh, I've always enjoyed the ones where it's collaborative, um, where a friend is a guest on Dinner and a Movie, and we're doing some silly characters making each other laugh. Those are my those are my favorites. Um, uh, or or you know, with the co hosts that I had just making each other laugh, making the crew laugh. Um, some of the trips that we took, uh, we would often go out of town and film. Sometimes we'd go out of the country and, uh, and tape shows. And, uh, those, those are some special, some special memories. Yeah. And those, those shows were taped. So if you, because it was all improv, right. Mm-hmm. But if there were, was a, a major mess up, I, mm-hmm. I imagine they could 
edit it out? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. There was a ton of editing that was that was needed in that. Um, but they would also sometimes release blooper reels um, of of things. Right. And, uh, yeah. Oh, that must have been a lot of fun. So I saw that uh, there is also a podcast documentary coming up that you um, are in as well, right? Earbuds, mm-hmm. I believe, is Earbuds, the title. Earbuds, yeah, yeah. It's produced by uh, Chris Mancini and uh, Graham Elwood, both uh, friends of mine. And, um, yeah, it's about the intimacy uh, of podcasting and how a bond can develop uh, that is – um, surprisingly deep between the listeners and the hosts because the nature of, I think, having somebody in your ears um, for an extended length of time in an uncensored medium is uh, can be so uh, so intimate and so life changing. What was that like uh, filming? Um, it you know it was just me being interviewed, uh, so it it wasn't that different but watching it uh i just felt really uh, flattered to be included in it um yeah a lot of podcasters in the movie aren't there quite a few yeah yeah and is it a full length documentary it is and any idea yeah, it's when really it's good. supposed to be published i was on their website and it, it didn't i couldn't find it i believe it, it just came out recently oh did it really yeah, okay yeah awesome i would love to check that out um, and also I know I had heard you mention on one of your podcasts recently about the LA podcast, uh, Podfest, mm-hmm. and that just happened two or three weeks ago. It did. And the, what is that all about? It's just a podcasting festival that they do annually in Los Angeles and it's fun. It's a way to meet the listeners, um, be a guest on somebody else's show, uh, participate in the stand-up show on Saturday night. Uh, there are panels discussing the business of podcasting, the art of podcasting. So it's just, you know, it's like Comic-Con, but for podcasting, uh, yeah. not as big as Comic-Con, but uh, a lot of fun. It's a yeah. it's a very kind of tight knit community in Southern California, the, the podcasting community. Um, and kind of the, the through line of it is comedians that all knew each other before they started podcasting. So that's kind of where the... Uh, um, the tight knit aspect of it is right. Are there other podfests that you know of, or is that one in LA? The There's one a, and only? another one that I think Earwolf uh, or Stitcher puts on. Um, they did last year, but I, I've never been a part of that one. And I also think there was one in uh, Palm Springs. I want to say last year, but I wasn't invited to that one either. Okay. Oh, are they invite only? Yeah, generally. Yeah. Okay. If you want to, to do, um, a live recording of your podcast with an audience and, you know, where tickets are sold. Yeah. You right. Have to invited to it. What about just attending to, you have to witness buy the podcast? Yeah. You just need a weekend pass. Got it. Got it. Sounds like a really cool experience. Yeah. It's really fun. It's nice to be part of a community. So in regards to, uh, depression and, uh, mental illness, dealing with living with a mental illness, any final thoughts that you could share with listeners, pieces of advice? Be nice to yourself. Treat yourself like you would if you had the flu. And yeah, that, uh, don't shame yourself. You know, is somebody lazy because they didn't go to work because they had the flu? No. So right. um, 
but don't shirk your responsibility to do what you can to manage it. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I tried to get a hashtag going on Twitter and I don't think I have enough followers to actually put a little dent in it, but it was hashtag self care is critical care. Yeah. Um, I do think it, it's so important and you can't help others until you've helped yourself. That's right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again. I really, uh, really, uh, enjoyed the interview and really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. My pleasure. All right, well, stay healthy, and I'll be listening to you. Thanks, Al. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files. <laughs>